Howdy folks and welcome to the Source Code Podcast brought to you by Ninja Jobs. My name is Chris Sanders and I want to welcome you into our second to last episode of the season. And I tell you, this is one I've been looking for for the whole season. When I sat down for season two and made my list of people I wanted to interview, right at the top of the list was my good friend Michael Lucas. Now, Michael and I know each other because we're both No Starch Press authors. Of course, my book, Practical Packet Analysis, was produced uh, by No Starch. And Michael has several No Starch books, including Absolute Free BSD, Cisco Routers for the Desperate, Network Flow Analysis, and quite a few others. He's also published several books independently, both in the nonfiction and the fiction space. Uh, a couple of those include Pam Mastery, um, Tarsnap Mastery, a lot of mastery books. Uh, Pseudo Mastery is one I uh, publicly reviewed that was really good. SSH Mastery is a favorite of mine. And he's also, like I said, gotten into the fiction realm somewhat too, and we'll talk about that uh, a bit later during the interview. So I'm really excited to bring Michael in here just to talk about, obviously, his past and how he got into technology, but specifically, we spend a lot of time talking about the writing aspect of what he does. I have so many people who come up to me and they say, hey, Chris, I'm interested in writing a book. Can you tell me you know, how I should do that or what's the best way or what are the things you've learned that I should know? And I get asked this so much that I actually wrote a blog post about it and said, here are the all the non-obvious things no one tells you about writing a book. Of course, one of those is that you shouldn't do it. Uh, I try to talk a lot of people out of it because, uh, well, it's, it's a lot more work than you think it is. But it's a very rewarding thing if you can do it. And, and again, Michael Lucas, he's produced a number of them and um, I think he considers himself maybe uh, more, even more of a writer than a technologist, right? So it's really interesting to get his perspective on that, learn about how he approaches writing, the business of writing. Uh, we talk about reading and why reading is important for writers. So if you've ever been interested in, in technical writing or how to get into that field or how to approach the, field, the, the area of writing a book, I think you'll really enjoy uh, this particular podcast and all he has to say about it. So that's enough of my yapping. Let's get over to Michael. Mike, how are you? I'm doing great, Chris. How are you? I am fantastic. Uh, now, this is this is the part of the show where I normally ask people, okay, what is your title and you know where do you work? But you're a writer and you work for yourself. Do you have like a cool title that you give yourself? Um, no, no. Uh, really, the only thing I call myself is, is pretty much write faster, you idiot. <laughs> Right faster. Now, now tell me this, and, and we're getting a little ahead here, but you, uh, you're very big on like you keep track of the words, the word count you write on a daily basis. What's a good day in terms of word count? <laughs> well, it depends on the topic. Uh, I was just writing a book on FreeBSD, the third edition of Absolute FreeBSD. And I got to the chapter that covered things like uh, INETD and SYSLOGD. And I did about 18,000 words in one day. Wow. That's, that's a lot of words. That's, that's probably more words than a lot of people have written um, like in, in maybe like a year. <laughs> yes, yes. But it's, it's SYSLOGD. If you're a sysadmin, you know this. Uh, on the other hand, say when I was working on, uh, the Pam book, there were days I was thrilled to get 500 words Yeah, because the topic was just so, uh, painful. Yeah. I got or, you. or, or DNS sec. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, I'll spend much more time trying to wrap my mind around what were the software authors thinking? Yeah, well, and that's I, and that's one of the things I know I've learned is, is if there's software out there that using it is painful, then writing about it is going to often be exponentially more painful. <laughs> uh, often, yes, yes. Usually, it's a case of um, the the pain is in getting yourself into the protocol and the software author's brain. Yeah. No, nobody sets out to write a painful software product. N nobody says, I'm going to write the most difficult to configure authentication system known to man. Mm -hmm. they, they, they have good reasons for all of this. Sometimes figuring out what those reasons were is a real challenge. Mm-hmm. Now, I, I've never really kept track much of, of, of my word count um, until I, I kind of do recently because I've been using Grammarly a lot. It's um, it, it really the main purpose it serves for me is, te is telling me when I've used too many commas or not enough commas because that's kind of the bane <laughs> of my existence. Um, but uh, but it does tell you it gives you like a little weekly report which tells you how many you know how many words you've, you've written and, and and all that. And and the thing I like is it tells you it says you were you know. 92% more productive than all the other Grammarly users. And, and I write a lot, so my number is really, really high. Like last week, it was you're, you said you're more productive than 99% of, of uh, the Grammarly uh, users, which made me feel really good until I realized that it doesn't account for all the words I write that I then delete, which is probably most of them. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. There, there is a danger with that kind of metric. Uh -huh. I, I only count words at the end of the day. And I only count words that go in a book, things like blog posts uh, or emails or ad copy don't count. Gotcha. Now that makes sense. Well, I got to tell you, I, I mean, I follow you on Twitter. The, the tweets are motivating for me because uh, especially when I have writing projects going on, I, I look and, and I see, oh, great. Lucas wrote 12,000 words today and I've done nothing. Great. Now I got to stay up another couple <laughs> hours. <laughs> well, good. Good. <laughs> so I guess the check's in the mail for the motivation, I guess. <laughs> Cool. So I want to, I guess I, I want to talk about, you know, your career and kind of how you got to where you were and a little bit about the writing business too. Um, but I guess let's start at the beginning. Now I know you, you're a Michigan guy. Um, so tell me what's, what's home for, for you? Where did you grow up and, and what was it like um, growing up there? Well, I grew up in Rochester, Michigan. It's about 20 miles outside Detroit. Uh, when I was a kid, it was a farm town. Uh, I lived on uh, MacAdam Road with no gutters or curbs. Now and then you would see farm animals that had gotten loose, and you know, you, you'd see a sheep going down the road, and, and a, a couple of people using really foul language running after it. You know. <laughs> I know, yeah. We, we had a grain elevator. It was, uh, I, when I was a kid, I was always fascinated because they had all these pallets of monkey chow. I didn't know Purina made monkey chow. So uh, my dad would send me out looking for the monkey farm. Because, you know, they, they wouldn't carry it if there weren't monkey, monkeys oh, yeah. around. Absolutely. <laughs> uh, so... 
Rochester's changed a bit since then. It now has all these posh shops and the roads are paved with uh, real asphalt and real concrete and they have uh, a whole bunch of medical places and I, I haven't seen a sheep there in years. <laughs> but right now I'm living in Gross Point Woods about a quarter mile outside Detroit. Gotcha. Now, when you were, were growing up in, in, in Rochester, what kind of student were you? I mean, were you straight A's? Were you focused on other things? <laughs> <laughs> um, I was a mediocre student at best. Mm -hmm. And I graduated with like a 2.1 from high school. Mm -hmm. They told me I was gifted and talented. So they... Uh, How, how can I put this? Uh, everything I do is certainly my fault. It's my responsibility. As a kid, look, looking back, I, I really could have used some instruction on what to do when topics didn't come easily. Mm -hmm. I, I really struggled when I got into college with, with this whole idea of studying and what is this and how do you do it? Mm-hmm. So I, I was a terrible, terrible student. Gotcha. Now, were you, I mean, we kind of have two threads we're, we're exploring here. One is obviously writing and the other was, was technology. Did any of those kind of have a place in your life at, the, at that age, like middle school into high school? I mean, were, oh. you, were you writing at that point? Were you fiddling with computers at that point? What? I, I was doing both. Mm -hmm. uh, my first computer was a Sinclair ZX80. It had this little chiclet keyboard, uh, 1K of RAM. Uh, it had a basic interpreter and 4K of ROM. And you pretty much had to do everything uh, either in basic or in assembler. They, they called it peek and poke, but looking back, it was assembler. Mm -hmm. And you, you had to back this up with a cassette tape recorder or type everything in from scratch. It was, uh, it, it was an education. And then I, I got myself a, uh, uh, my folks got me a Commodore. Mm -hmm. And you, you all remember the, the Commodore Plus Four. Oh, yeah. Which was the, the, the bad knockoff of the Commodore 64. So <laughs> it had a built-in word processor. And I actually had a, a floppy disk drive with it. So when I wasn't figuring out how the computer worked, I was writing on it. Mm -hmm. Because uh, the Plus 4, as clunky as it was... It beat the heck out of the manual typewriter I learned to type on. <laughs> I tell you, I, I love writing on a typewriter. Um, I, I have one. I don't write on it much. I just kind of play around with it, I guess, nowadays. I love writing on it, but I could never write anything like a book or an article on anything. I'm just so used to like writing things and being so disorganized that I move things around so much that if I can't copy and paste an entire paragraph and move it up a couple paragraphs, then I'm basically useless. <laughs> I I did that as well. I I do that all the time, and it's it's much easier to think on paper. Yes, 
Mm-hmm. But, you know, as a kid, hearing about how writers worked, and they all wrote on typewriters, so I decided I would learn to write on a typewriter. Mm-hmm. And the, uh, the worst bit was the, uh, the letter E on that typewriter. It was, it was a cheap brother for students. We got it, uh, like, third hand from who knows where. The E letter kept popping off. And on those old typewriters, all the letters were, were basically impaled on metal spikes. <laughs> and you'd have to slam down your finger pretty hard. And, and to this day, I'm really rough on keyboards because I, I learned at an early age, you pound it. Uh-huh. So, and it, it's all loud and clattering, so you wouldn't hear the E keycap fall into the machine. And of course, you know, real writers don't look at their hands when they're typing. <laughs> so when, when people say they have bled for their art, uh, yes, yes, the, the uh, middle finger on my left hand, uh, I slashed that open so many times it's not even funny. Oh man, I, I thought you were about to tell me that like you just got to a point where you just didn't write any words that had ease in them. Like you just avoided them altogether. <laughs> I tried that, but it's harder than you'd think. E's an important letter. Like I, I, there's, it is. There's some letters like I can maybe do without like Q or X or something, but E I feel like is one I really need. Yes, uh, yes. It, it's it, that. That's like giving up air. Yeah, you, you can do it, but it, it won't work for very long. Yeah, I, I often wonder. I think about typewriter like I said, I, I have one, and I think about like the fact that again, I, I like to copy and paste whole sentences or paragraphs and move them around and really deal with structure a lot, especially because in technical writing, there's there's just a lot of different ways you can structure things. It's not it's it's a little bit different than fiction in that regard. Yeah, and um, and I wonder like. The folks who, you know, before computers and they, and they were focusing exclusively on typewriters, I feel like that almost probably made them better writers to some degree because if you mess, I mean, if you mess up, like you're, you're basically winding up a piece of paper and throwing it away. And if you're way down on the page, that's that's a lot of work. Um, it is. <laughs> so, 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 yeah, I mean, I, I often think about that. I feel like if I were to actually get really good at typing and typing a lot of these things that I do professionally onto a typewriter, it would probably make me a better writer. I'm not going to do it, but that's, you know, what I've thought about. <laughs> well, Yes and no. Uh, I've done a lot of reading about the old pulp writers because those are the uh, those are the kind of writers I try to be. You know, people who wrote five hundred books in their lifetime, mm-hmm. and just like learning any skill when you first start, it it's it's bad. It's hard. You sweat over the small stuff. I, I suspect uh, that if you looked back at, at the very first edition of Practical Packet Analysis, which, by the way, everyone, is a lovely book. If you go anywhere near a network or you have a computer attached to a network, you, you need that book. Oh, there we go. And, uh, and, 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 and so for the folks listening, I didn't pay him to say that. No, no, it's a fantastic book. Uh, and I, I don't comment on books unless I can be unreservedly nice about them. (laughs) So, but if you look back when you were writing that, you probably sweated blood over stuff that you'd find really easy now. 
Oh yeah, absolutely. So the stuff that's hard after your 30th book or your hundredth book isn't the same stuff that's, you know, hard in your first or your 10th. Yeah. And the, the people who wrote on typewriters, they, they didn't have much choice. They had to learn to think ahead. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes, that makes sense. And I mean, and there's probably some, some kind of something to say, you know, kind of generationally speaking about our ability to, to think ahead. I don't know if I can say too much about it without getting too much, you know, get off my lawn type deal. But, uh, <laughs> uh, yeah. So, well, Just, yes. Um, now it, it, when you were in school, I mean, did you, um, well, tell me this, you know, before we get to talking about college, did you work any like weird jobs? I mean, what was your first job that you worked? Well, uh, God, my first real job other than you know, mowing lawns and such was working as a bag boy at a grocery store. Uh, I then went on, I, I worked in the pet department up at Myers, which is our, our big chain here. Uh, we, uh, I then worked in a library for several years and that took me into it, mm-hmm. uh, because I, I realized that in, in the library, I loved the people. I, I loved the books, but I hated the actual work. Mm-hmm. And, uh, a friend of mine needed people back in 95 to help work network operations uh, at a a national backbone. And weirdly enough, uh, a lot of my my writing and reading background really helped in that field. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. now, tell me this. One of the things that I get asked a lot is people will say, okay, you write books. Um, do you read a lot? And I, I'm one of those folks who, when I grew up, I, I hated reading. And I, I really kind of had to force myself to read by really finding things I was interested in. So, And I still don't read a ton of fiction. Um, read a lot of nonfiction and, and, and things like that. But, but for you, were you, are you a voracious reader now? And were you back then? I am an utterly voracious reader. I, well, well, first let me say, when you're in school, most school reading programs are designed to make kids hate reading. Mm-hmm. There are wonderful books out there, and uh, very few people will give uh, their kids books that they would enjoy. Mm-hmm. If I have to read Lord of the Flies one more time, something bad is going to happen. So yeah, I, I read huge amounts. The world is full of wonderful books. Um, I am reading The Art of Community right now, and if I was smarter, I would have brought it up here. So I could tell you the title, but it's a lovely book mm-hmm. on how open source communities work. And I'm reading Terry Pratchett uh, because he is a fantastic, wonderful novelist. And uh, yes, I'm, I'm, I usually read three books at a time. 
So I'm, I'm rereading Extraordinary Popular Delusions and the Madness of Crowds. Oh, wow. It's a, it's a book about bubbles. And I, it's 150 years old, but it's never been out of print. Interesting. And, I, and that book kept me from, has kept me from getting burned in both of the dot-com crashes. I, you know, I take a, a similar strategy as you. Generally speaking, at any given time, I'm reading two to four books that averages about about three on different topics. Right, like one of them is one of them is fiction, one of them is is nonfiction and non technical, and the other is um, used to well, it used to be a lot of technical. Now it is also nonfiction, non technical. I'm finding myself reading less and less tech books, just kind of as I'm becoming more interested in other things. But I think I, mean, I think you hit the nail on the head about schools and and i mean i get their their idea that okay you know lord of the flies we want to make these kids read something that's really out of their realm and, and expand their mindsets but they don't really necessarily take into account where the students are right like you kind of have to meet them somewhere instead of just say hey come to me here right and they, they don't yes they don't necessarily do that too well and, and i can see where that would be a difficult thing to do but there, there's it's the kids who i think find that you know, find something that meets them where they are and pushes them just a little bit further who really get the bug and really get interested in reading. And I know for me that wasn't until uh, really into into young adulthood when I when I got really interested in, you know, poverty in, in rural areas. And I'm like, well, I want to read everything I can on poverty. And then I found things that pushed me to poverty in urban areas and then uh, mm-hmm. you know, controlling diseases in rural areas because that's one of the things that's a, a byproduct of the poverty. And, and those things, yep. that, again, take you where you're at and push you the extra 10%. And that's kind of how you grow and and certainly very important absolutely i mean uh there's a word i use a lot for books for 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 different kinds of books we have this this split between you know literary fiction and commercial fiction you know and literary is, is intelligent and highbrow and you should be reading it well you know Every time I pick up one of those, I wind up really depressed. I don't want to read that. What, what people like and what kids like is something that makes them feel good. There's a reason Harry Potter did so well. Mm-hmm. It's, it's pulp. It is pure pulp fiction. In, in the, the larger-than-life, somebody starts off from the very bottom and climbs to the top. And there are, there's a, a, a struggle worth having. And I'm not saying you need you know, great big evil wizards to enjoy reading. But you, ne- you need to have someone you can relate to. You need to have a, a struggle worth having and that you can, that you can empathize with. Mm-hmm. And I, tr- I try to put that into uh, everything I write, fiction and nonfiction. I mean, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pick on practical packet analysis here for a minute. Because mm-hmm. you have, that book is full of struggle. Because the, ne- the network is this horrible black box. It's invisible. You can't see packets. You, you have to, you, you, inexplicable things happen and you really have to dig in to, to figure them out. And it is so satisfying when you find what is throwing garbage on your network. 
And that that and that's a struggle we all relate to. Mm-hmm. Or at least anybody who would pick up that book relates to. And and that is what you need in a book. And a an eight year old kid doesn't care about, you know, being trapped on a desert island and uh everybody being really mean to each other. They'll they'll be good. They they need it to, to in some way hook to them. Mm-hmm. And, and it's I mean and truth is is a big factor in that too because I, I can certainly like I mean and even with technical books you can make up struggle but people know real struggle and that, that was the thing with practical pack analysis I lived through the struggle of I opened Wireshark or at the time Ethereal and and I had no idea what I was looking at and, <laughs> and there there was, and at the time there was nothing out there to help me like I could Google wasn't around but I could like mm-hmm. I don't know Lycos it all I wanted to and uh, and couldn't find anything. And so it, it, that's and that's important from the author perspective is, is to you know tell the truths that you know and that's why the people who have mo- most often lived through experiences similar to these things write the best books about them and even when people write fiction oftentimes that fiction is founded in experiences that they have lived in in their lives and and that's I mean I, I think that's I think when you learn especially when you learn we not just read what people write but when you learn about them and know about them I think when you can connect those things that's a pretty beautiful type type of situation. It is. It is. Um, and and I, I heard something a while ago that, that really stuck with me. I'm sure it's a quote, but I have no idea who from. Uh, it's really important to learn from other people's mistakes because you don't have time in your life to make them all on your own. <laughs> that's great. And that, that's kind of what we do writing tech books. Writing documents is we're, we're trying to pass on, you know, learn from my pain. And that's, that's kind of where a lot of my books came from. You know, the, the Pam book, uh, the Sudo book, all, all of those came from, wow, that I, I cringe any time I need to go near this. I don't want to go near this, so... Um, I'm going to just grip my teeth, get through the pain, take the notes, and save other people that dread. I want to pause for just a second to tell you about CloudShark. I love CloudShark. It's just like Wireshark, but it's actually web-based, so it can often get you to the answer you're looking for quite a bit faster, and it also allows you to pass around URLs instead of files, which is a lot easier, especially when you're dealing with large capture files. I actually used CloudShark when I was writing my book, Practical Packet Analysis, and I use it at home in my lab to organize and index my packet captures. It's really convenient, has a lot of really cool advanced features, like a deep search for matching packets with standard filters, and an ability to do IDS signature matching within your packet captures. It's all really great stuff. Now, they've created a coupon code just for listeners of this podcast. The code is source code 17, source code 17, and listeners of this podcast will get 20% off their first year of CloudShark if they sign up for a yearly count. That's a total of four months for free, and it's a really great deal. Again, I'm a huge fan of CloudShark, and I think you'll like it too. And now, back to Michael. Well, now, interesting. Like I said, I think, and I agree with you. And I think um, one of my favorite books in the world is Stephen King's On Writing, which I'm, I'm sure you you know oh. as well. 
and yes. and I, I end up giving it away to a lot of a lot of people who are interested in, in writing. And uh, you know, he he talks about you know reading is important because if it, if nothing else, if you want to write, it gives you a toolbox because you learn about other ways authors introduce things and talk about things and and break up narrative and uh, you learn about those and it builds your toolbox and, and that's incredibly useful. And I know that's something again that I, that I've valued as I've written more and more and and. Um, uh, certainly, I've I've not written nearly as much as you have, but I've written I think more than most people have um, at this yes. point. <laughs> and uh, <clears throat> but then on the other side of it too, and and I, I think it's important for people listening to know. I mean, I don't think you necessarily have to be a voracious reader to to write things. And and the the example I'll cite is when I wrote um, Applied Network Security Monitoring, and my co-author on that was was Jason Smith, who's a good friend of mine. And he um you know he doesn't mind me telling this story, but he will he will tell you he wrote you know a few chapters of that book, and and he'll say you know. I wrote that, but I have not read a book since high school, right? Like I made mm-hmm. him, I, I made him read Practical Packet Analysis because he helped review it. But in that, that was really the only book he's read since high school. Uh, but he still wrote it and, and wrote it well. So you don't, I don't think you necessarily have to be a voracious reader to, to write things. But then again, he would also tell you he would not describe himself as an author. He'd just say, "I'm a guy who wrote a couple chapters of a book and wrote about things I'm interested in," which for some people could lead to more authorship. And I think maybe it will for him one day down the road. But um, you don't necessarily have to be a voracious reader to write things, um, but it certainly, I think one will lead to the other oftentimes. Oftentimes it will. And if you want to, if you want to write a lot, I, I really think you have to be a reader. Mm-hmm. There are, if, if you want to write a lot and you want it to be readable, you need to read a lot and see how people did it. Uh, practical packet analysis, or sorry, uh, the, the network security. Mm-hmm. Uh, I have it here on the shelf about five feet out of reach of my microphone, so I'm not going to go grab it. That's a... Uh, I would ask you how much work did the editor have to do on your co-author's chapters? Yeah, well, and, and the answer would be more than my than when for mine, right? Yes. If if you have someone you're working with, there's a a a tradition in the tech publishing business that, or a a, a practice rather that that says it's easier to take a good engineer and make him a writer than it is to take a writer and make him an engineer. Uh, but they accept that they're going to have to do a bunch of work on the engineer's writing. Yeah. And, and that's okay. I mean, these books are the only way. Tools like stack exchange and message forums are great for solving one-off problems. But for getting context and seeing how it fits together, you need a book, you need a class, you need something like that. Mm-hmm. And so our, our most tech publishers do the best they can to, to make engineers writing a little more readable. I mean, we've, I'm sure that you have tr- had tech books that you've needed to read for work yeah that were just terrible books yeah absolutely most of them probably yes you don't you you have to 
you must acquire the information. So you drag yourself across the broken glass of the page. And it's horrible. And the more you read, the more you understand how to write in a readable way. Mm-hmm. So the, the, the bad book is better than no book. Right. But you can do better. Yeah, absolutely. That's cool. Now, <clears throat> going back to you a little bit. So you know you, you're you're living in, in, in Rochester. You're going to high school. You're you're getting you're getting C's. Um, you're working as a, as a bag boy. You're writing a little bit on the side, writing some code. At some point, it comes time. You know you're about to graduate high school, and, and I guess college is an option for you there. So how what went into your decision to decide what was next for you, and tell us what that thing was. Oh, I had no clue. Um, my folks were, were not rich, so going away to school w- wasn't a, a real option. And there are some great schools in Michigan, uh, but I pretty much had to l- live at home. And I could either go down to one of the factories and see if I could get a job you know, somewhere, at, basically as a laborer, or I could go to college and see what happened. And my, uh, my dad's employer, uh, Computer Peripherals Incorporated, he drove a truck there, and they had a, a $500 a semester scholarship. I applied for it, and somehow I got it. So I had a scholarship, and, and, you know, in 1985, you could go to school for a semester on 500 bucks. Wow. That's amazing. Yeah, yeah. All these people who tell the college kids to get a job and pay for their tuition, um, it, it's not like that anymore. So I, basically, I lucked out. I got into college. I got exposed to a, a broader world. And uh, I, I actually spent 10 years in college before I, I wound up with the appropriate credits to get a degree. And what was that degree in? My degree's in English. Hey, there you go. And I have minors in math and physics. Oh, a very common traditional path, the, uh, At- the, the English major with the math and physics minors. Well, I, I had a couple... Ah, I wanted to go for math because math is way cool. It really is. And then I hit multivariable differential equations. And I I have trouble understanding people when they speak a lot of the time. And it's really amplified when the person doesn't speak good English. Mm Mm-hmm. And, and the teacher for that class was, uh, he was Chinese. His English was worse than my brain could assemble. And I, I tried three or four times to get through that class and just couldn't do it. Because at, at that level, you really need someone to, to help get you through some of the bumps uh, in learning that level of math. Mm-hmm. It, it is not easy stuff. Right. Yeah, absolutely. 
so I, I wound up, I said, well, I like physics. I'll switch to physics. I didn't bother looking at the curriculum for physics. I spent uh, a few years there. You know, at this point, I was going part-time. Scholarship had run out. And then I realized that one of the courses that I needed to take to get a physics degree was multivariable differential equations. What we were talking about in looking ahead, um, uh-huh. yeah, we're, uh, I wasn't that good at it. <laughs> but I, I had taken English courses on the side to kind of, uh, they were fun, they were easy. You know, I, I, you, you read some books and you write a paper, fine. I could do this all day. And, and I realized that I had, I, I had taken all of the courses that I needed to get an English degree, except Introduction to English Studies. Huh. So I took that course, I got a degree, I got out of college. Yeah. So, what, so what's, what's after that? I mean, at some point you said you were, you were obviously there for a while, and it sounds like you were doing that part-time, so you were obviously working during this time, and you mentioned what you were doing with the library and how that got yep. in, you interested in tech. So what did that lead to after college? Well, uh, I worked at the university library for a while. I was a book cataloger. Which again is really cool. All of these books would come in, and I'd I'd have to examine them, and and that part was cool because there's the world is full of interesting information. It was like working inside Google's web crawling database. Mm-hmm. Uh, just everywhere you looked, there was all this knowledge, and it it was amazing. Problem is, the job wasn't to read the books. The job was to assign catalog numbers and get them on the shelf. Right. And, you know, the, the people were wonderful. The, 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 the library itself, fantastic. Assigning catalog numbers is a, a mind-numbing task eight hours a day. So uh, a friend of mine... I, I was, you know, complaining about my job in that traditional way we do. And a friend of mine said, hey, uh, the National Science Foundation just let companies commercialize the Internet. And we need someone to work network operations midnights. And all you have to do is, you know, when the phone rings, answer it. The phone never rings at night. Nobody's up. <laughs> and then you'll have to, you know, follow some procedures. But, you know, when it, on those nights that it's quiet and nothing's going on, you could just sit there and write. And I thought, well, this sounds pretty cool. Uh, I could do that. And, of course, anyone who's worked network operations at midnight for a growing Internet company in the 90s uh, knows that the phone never stops ringing. Your customers never sleep. Mm-hmm. But, you know, after spending all this time 
working on these itty bitty computers and you know I'd I'd hang out in the library computer lab and we had these you know email and Usenet and Gopher and then someone invented a a web browser that you could put pictures on and you know all all of this was really cool stuff so I I dug in and it had math cuz you know math is cool yeah and that's when um you know they the company had procedures they were terrible so i i took some notes and i made my own version and one day i left the uh my copy of my procedure sitting on the desk someone found it I got asked about it the next day, and it got distributed to the company as this is how you do it. I want to pause for a minute and tell you about one of our newest sponsors, Ninja Jobs. Now, y'all know my advertising policy in this podcast. I only advertise for things that I actually like, and I really like Ninja Jobs. It certainly falls in that category. Ninja Jobs is the premier job platform used by thousands of cybersecurity professionals. And that's whether you're looking for a job or trying to fill one, Ninja Jobs has you covered. If you're considering a change in your job or just looking for your new challenge, or maybe you just want to see what's out there, Ninja Jobs is a free platform with hundreds of jobs posted weekly. You can register for free and begin your search right now. Now, on the flip side, say you're struggling to find top talent for your organization. You're having trouble filling a specific position. Skip the recruiters and head over to Ninja Jobs. You can register for free, and you actually have a special promo code for listeners of this podcast. The promo code is the source T H E S O U R C E the source, and that'll give you ten percent off your first job listing. If you're looking for a job or looking to fill one, I highly recommend you spend some time and look at Ninja Jobs. I think you'll like what you see. And now back to Michael. At what point, I know, you know, you, you continued along the technical career path for a while, but at what point did you, well, a two-part question. Part one is kind of what point did you realize, like, you know, the writing part of it could be significant for you, both in terms of either career or just personal satisfaction, and what was the first thing you published? Oh, let's see. Been writing since I was young. Uh, submitting fiction to traditional publishers and not getting anywhere. Um, first thing I published actually was in the early nineties, uh, a tabletop role-playing game called gate crasher, which, uh, that was fun. Uh, didn't make anything on it, but it was personally satisfying. Like you say, uh, a few years pass, and I was reading Sysadmin magazine. And this, they, they had an article. I, I don't even remember what the article was on. But I remember I needed the topic, and the writing was awful. Mm-hmm. And so I, I'm, I finished the article and said, Oh, my God, I could do better than this with my eyes closed. And I turned the page, and there were the submission guidelines. Bingo. Yeah. And it said, you know, we pay money. So, well, you know, I could write a thousand words on something and send it in. And they sent me a check for 800 bucks. 
Wow. And at that point, now, now keep in mind, since the, since about the sixties, if you're writing novels, the, the typical advance on a novel was $3,000 in the 1960s. And back then, that, that was reasonable money. If the, if, the, uh, if the average income was like $10,000, know, a $3,000 check is good money. Mm-hmm. Today, the, the average advance on a novel is $3,000. Yeah. Hasn't risen a penny. Hmm. So that, that $800 check was a, a uh, that was a revelation. Yeah. So I, I wrote more articles that led to uh, uh, I got uh, picked up by O'Reilly to write a BSD column for them. And I, I did that for a few years, and that led to No Starch asking me to write a book. Mm-hmm. So No Starch was your first book book publisher then as well? Yes. Okay. Yes. So I, I didn't realize that. Well, we, we obviously have that, that in common then. And, and from, from those beginnings, how many, how many published works in terms of books, how many published books do you have now? Do you know? Oh, 30-some. Okay. That's a lot. Like I can't. Like I feel like. <laughs> like sometimes I look back and I have all mine on my shelf, and I've written five, and I'm like, man, I'm awesome. And then I hear that, you and are. I'm like, I'm like, yeah, I could be more awesome. But no, that that's seriously <laughs> impressive because I, 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 like, I look back at some of those, and what I think of, and I think what all authors think of, and this is kind of the the typical thing is like I look back at those, and I think not of what happened after, but I think about the process of writing those, and I think about some of them, and just how like how tremendously like soul draining some of it was. There was a lot of enjoyable parts too, but of course you remember the, the soul draining parts and, oh. I'm, and, I'm, and, and I'm like five times, like I can't imagine doing that like 30 something times. I mean, that's something. <laughs> well, here, uh, thank you for, for me. It was kind of, uh, learning some assembler in basic does not prepare you for working on the modern internet. Mm -hmm. And back in the mid nineties, these internet companies were going so fast that if you had basic motor functions in a heartbeat, they'd give you a try um, and just see if you could hack it. Mm -hmm. So I knew nothing. I had to, you know, I was, the, the job interview, the, the question I remember most was, have you ever used FTP? Hmm. So I had, I'd had some trouble with it, but I'd eventually gotten it to work. So I, I knew nothing. I had to learn everything. And I, I took notes. So in, in a way that, that kind of prepared me for, for writing these books because I, I had to learn everything from the ground up as an adult. Uh, I learned my, my first take on TCP IP from Cisco iOS version 7 manual. We, we had the whole set as a stack in the knock. Mm-hmm. 
and nights when the phone wasn't ringing, I, I dug through those. And that, that's not the best education tool, but it's what we had. Yeah. So, uh... Well, well t- tell, me, tell me this. In terms of, I mean, you obviously, you're, you're a writer, a full-time writer now, so you're self-employed, which means you do something a lot of people don't do with, with books, and that's make, make money, right? Like, you make enough money to <laughs> you pay, your, pay your bills. And, yes. uh, and that's, that's a tough thing. Like, I know anytime someone comes to me and they're like, hey, you've written some books, tell me, like, I want to write one, you know, should I, and, and how would it work? And I, you know, I ask them why they want to do it. And if their answer is ever I, that they want to do it to make money, I tell them that they are probably in the wrong business. Um, yes. Because, because it just, the amount, especially for the amount of time you spend on it. Um, and now that's generally speaking to kind of the casual author who may write one book ever. You're obviously a little bit different in that you have several of them. So that's all, each one represents a different income stream, but, but you know, what, obviously that that's an intimidating thing, but, but is, is that the secret? Is it just a lots of good content or is there more to it? Pretty much. That's it. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, your books are, books are lottery tickets. And sometimes a lottery ticket is a dud, and sometimes it brings in a lot, and you have no way of knowing. Mm-hmm. Uh, books that I wrote thinking are they're going to sell brilliantly? Oh, uh, no, not a bit. Um, I had some pretty good hopes for my DNS sec book. Because it's it's mandatory in a lot of Europe. The people who've bought the book say it's good. It's well-reviewed. The sales are really very small. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, I, on the is there a book on the flip side? And I think I, I might have an educated guess on, on the answer to this. But is there a book that you wrote that you maybe didn't think it was going to do as well and that it did do really well? <laughs> <laughs> One one of my fiction pieces did really well, um, surprisingly well. I should have asked before coming in: Is this a G-rated podcast? Uh, P- it, I mean, it's, it's PG thirteen. Okay, fair enough. Then okay, yes, I I wrote a story. I, I wrote an open source political satire disguised as pornography. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's called Savaged by System D. <laughs> and it, it was an example of I, I was just beating my head against the FreeBSD book and just, just killing myself on that. And m- my brain one day said, no, no, we are doing something stupid. And, and sometimes you have to do that if, if, you're, if you're in the middle of a really hard project. You just you just have to step away for a day and and do something frivolous, mm-hmm. and and the idea came to me, uh, like, well, no, I'd I'd been the, the idea had come to me like six months before, and I said, yeah, that's funny, and you know, shoved it back in 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 the back of my mental dresser. And said that no, no, that that's just a terrible, terrible thing. 
Um, so I took one day and I wrote it and it, it broke my writer's block on the, the free BSD book, which is what I really wanted. But I have a rule that if I write something and my first readers say that it works, I publish it because mm-hmm. otherwise I'll, I'll finish something. You know, anytime I finish a book, I realize that it is complete crap Yep, as all authors do, yeah. Yes, this is horrible. No one's ever going to want to read this. It's going to ruin my reputation. Uh, You know, uh, hardcore KKK members are going to spit in my shadow as I walk down the street if I put this out. (laughs) Ah, You know. So, So I put it out, and it, it has shockingly taken off yeah and it is still a month after it released it is my best-selling title by volume wow Uh, and in in print well and and you know the the interesting thing about that is now uh, unless that that changes at some point forever like when you put you know for me practical packet analysis is my bestseller so it's chris sanders author of practical packet analysis and and from here on out until you change it, it it's michael w lucas author of savage by system d <laughs> <laughs> um, and it's like a nickname you can't do anything about it that just, that just is what it yeah. is so i hope you're prepared for that well i knew what i was getting into yeah <laughs> that, but, uh, that's, that's amazing that's that's truly, that's, truly amazing now, yeah and meanwhile you know the pgp book is has been out in, for 11 years and it's sold like 2,000 copies yeah so it, uh, yeah who knows <laughs> who knows <laughs> well now um uh, I want to ask you, you, um, you've obviously worked through a publisher, you've worked through No Starch, and, and, and I, I guess you've done at least a few things through O'Reilly, but you've also self-published a lot. Yep. Kind of tell me, you know, what, what are the pros and cons? Because I get asked this a lot from people as well, is, you know, should I self-publish? Should I, um, should I go through a publisher? And I have my thoughts on that, but, but for, your, for your money, what, what's the benefit of going with a traditional publisher versus self-publishing? Okay. My first question is going to come back to what you ask people. What are your goals? If your goal is – a lot of technical and security people, their goal is to write a book so they become an expert. They get that recognition. And that, that's a very valid way of doing things. Mm-hmm. If that is your goal and you are only going to write one book – Get a trad publisher. Uh, and because like, like anything else, it's a, it's a trade-off. You know, someone who's uh, someone who is in the writing business for the long haul. If you are playing a long game. You definitely want to do some self-publishing. Mm-hmm. One, you understand a lot more about what your publisher does. Uh, and two, for it gives you leverage. Because a, a, in negotiating with a publisher, uh, it's a little bit one-sided, and it has been for decades. If you wrote a book... 
it had to go through a publisher or you, or you wouldn't get anywhere, and you kind of had to take the terms they offered. That's why the advances on novels have been at $3,000 for 50 years. Mm-hmm. But if you self-publish, if, if you've done even a little bit, that suddenly gives you... The publisher knows you have options, and he knows you know, and you don't have to bring up those options. It can all be very polite and civilized, but they know you can walk away. Yeah, they know, they know that the publisher knows that they're not the only path you have to getting to a goal, to an end. Yes. Now, uh, most of my stuff has been self-published lately in the last few years. Uh, the new FreeBSD book... Oh, I'm I'm supposed to do some marketing here. Um, it's it's now on pre-order at nostarch.com, and coupon code I love Michael gives you thirty percent off. There you go. And puts a couple extra bucks in my pocket. Mm-hmm. Um, or coupon code pre-order gives you the same thirty percent off and doesn't pay me anything extra. So, if you want the book but you think I'm a jerk, that's the way to go. <laughs> I like that you give people the option. Well, it, it's. It, it is up to people. Yeah. And it really and, is. And you are nothing but a man of the people. Well, there's people who'd argue that. <laughs> well, <laughs> then they can use the code pre-order. Yes, they can. <laughs> so I'm, I'm using them for this book because it is it, physically it's a large book. Mm-hmm. It's going to be 800 pages, I'm guessing, when it comes out. Wow. One, the self-publishing plat- tools aren't up for that. Um, two, I want the multiple revenue streams. Uh, three, they can get in, into places that are difficult for me to reach. Uh, and four, I'm going to be, I'm going to make a couple vague references here because I'm not going to run down any particular publisher. Mm -hmm. I use No Starch because they are... No Starch is an old-fashioned publisher. We would call them artisan these days. Uh, They publish maybe 15 books a year, where some of the big tech publishers will publish that many books in a month. Mm -hmm. Uh, Every No Starch book they do actual publicity and promotions on. Um, They are... So the goal there is to expand my readership and and leverage their PR force and their sales team. Uh, The book has some mentions of my other self-published books in it. Not a lot, because that would be rude. But things like, you know, there, there's a chapter on ZFS. Mm-hmm. Alan, and, and you have to know some ZFS to run FreeBSD. Alan Jude and I wrote two whole books on ZFS. So there is a, a mention in there. It says, you know, if you want more, look here. So I'm, I'm trying to use... I'm trying to, to have some synergy here and and yet be sure I provide the reader with the information that they actually need. Um, 
and and not be a jerk to the publisher or disrespect my readers by shamelessly shilling everything. Right. Uh, I want to get some mailing list signups out of this because I, I have an announcement mailing list. One for fiction, one for nonfiction. That uh, I only send an email to people when I have a new excuse for them to give me money. Because uh, there, there are people who will, sh- you know, they'll market you three times a week. And I, I kind of assume, you know, for, for, for tech readers, if they, if they see that a book exists and they're interested in the topic they're, and they've already signed up for my mailing list, if I tell them once, they're going to buy it. Right. And if they're, not, if they're not interested, that's okay. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah, absolutely. Maybe next time. Yeah. So tell me this, and this is kind of the, the last big question. This is I ask this to everyone in, in one form or another. But uh, let's say someone's listened to this, or they read your books, and they want to follow a similar career path, and that they, you know, they want to be a writer, not just a writer of one book, but a writer of many books, both technical, both fiction. What What would your advice be to those people? Okay. Um. Oh, well, first thing is to study writing. And, and I mean something very specific by that. If you look around, you'll find writers groups where people, you know, they'll, they'll critique each other's writing and, you know, give advice for improving it. Uh, Knowing other writers is great for social support, but uh, I would strongly encourage people to only take writing advice from people who are successful writers. And by successful, I mean people who get paid for making words. Mm -hmm. Uh, A lot of these writers groups are, and why are you listening to the person who has never sold anything on how you should fix your story so it will sell. Mm -hmm. Uh, Don't do that. Listen to people who have been there. Study the lives of people who have done the work you want to do. Uh, I read a lot about pulp writers uh, because that's the kind of writer I want to be. Yeah. And Oh, I should have written this name down. There are authors who... uh, Do you remember like Doc Savage? Mm Mm-hmm. The author who wrote that is also... uh, Wrote a mystery... uh, Sorry, wrote a Western series under a different name. He wrote, uh, I believe it's Marcus Welby, M.D. novels that the, the old TV show is based on. The guy wrote several hundred novels under all these different names. Uh, Lester Dent, that's it. And you would never know it because his real name is not on any of them. Yeah. So, and, and that's how publishing worked at the time. Mm-hmm. I would also tell people, um, read a lot. Read everything. 
Uh, and by that, I don't mean bad books. But read in fields that you're, you're not usually reading in. Mm -hmm. um, I read romance novels. Not uh, as a regular thing, but three or four times a year, I'll pick up five or six of them and just plow through them. And they're, they're fun. I never would have expected that. They're great fun. And, and you know, if you are, if you only read sysadmin books, uh, pick up a programming book and a thriller novel. You know, expand your horizons and do it by reading the stuff that other people say this was really good and I enjoyed it. Awesome. That's that's fantastic advice, and and I, I particularly like like the part about not just listening to anybody, but but almost kind of trying to f find the people who are doing the things that you want to do, and, and learn from them, emulate for, for, from them, but while also obviously still broadening your worldview and putting your own spin on it and, and, and making it yours as well. So that's I think that's fantastic advice. Um, before we get you out here, anything uh, you mentioned uh, the one book? Anything else you want to promote? Any other books coming out, or any of them that are out recently that you want to promote? Oh, let's see. Uh, stuff your your readers would probably be particularly interested in. I have a a new edition of SSH Mastery will be out by the end of February, mm -hmm. and that covers uh, SSH certificates, which are kind of a black art. Yeah. Uh, but they're if you run thousands of machines and you have thousands of sysadmins, that's what you need. Yeah, well, and, and and even from the perspective of like a, a pen tester or something like that, like I, I actually just on my Cuckoo's Egg uh, course that I run, uh, actually it was the week before last, I actually spent time showing people like here's how to chain SSH connections together and, and how to like pivot through machines to, you know, hide where you're coming from when you're going to one place. And, and that book is going to be the type of thing that I think people will be interested in if they were interested in that type of uh, workflow. Oh, yes, yes, Absolutely. And I'm, I'm going to go on the, the fiction side a moment, and uh, I have a, a murder mystery set at a Unix convention mm -hmm. called Git Commit Murder. It's basically if Agatha Christie ran Unix cons, kind of a, a British-style mystery. Uh-huh. You know, with uh, uh, a sort of genteel, I would say. Gotcha. Uh and that's been very well reviewed by the, the technology community and left a lot of people outside it puzzled, but that's okay. It's not written <laughs> for them. Awesome. Uh, other than that, I'm, I'm going to go and I'm, I'm going to shill practical packet analysis. Oh, shucks. Yeah, well, even sysadmins have to know the network. It's, it's a vital topic. And, and going to a packet sniffer, it is... Don't let it scare you. That's where the problem is. Go look and see what's happening. Yeah. 
That's cool. Well, I, well, I appreciate that. Well, well, thanks so much for your time. I think this has been really useful. I don't get to, I mean, I spent a lot of time on this podcast talking tech with people and, and we did a little bit of that, but I really, I mean, I enjoy writing. It's a craft I've spent a lot of my career uh, working on and you're a guy who's writing I really love. And, I, and and even if nobody else listens to this and really likes it, I enjoyed the conversation and I got a lot <laughs> out of it. So you can you can at least know that uh, that, that it was valuable in that perspective. So, so Mike, thanks, thanks so much for your time and uh, you have a good rest of your day. You too. My pleasure. Thank you so much. This was fun. Wow, what a great interview. I really like that we were able to spend a lot of time talking about the writing facet of Michael's career, which I think is just entirely fascinating. Virtually nobody in our field is going to write as many books as he's written, and it's uh, it's certainly an admirable thing. I know how much work went into that. Uh, I'll take a quick moment here to plug my Effective Information Security Writing course. Writing is obviously a critical skill for what we do in information security, and even if you're not going to go out and write a book, you do need to understand how to write effective penetration testing reports or compromise reports, things of that nature. So I created my effective InfoSec writing class specifically for that purpose. It's incredibly accessible. It's only $97 and it's available at networkdefense.io. It's only about five hours of material, but I provide a lot of relevant examples and templates, and it's specifically designed for InfoSec practitioners. We don't spend a lot of time talking about things like grammar or spelling. You can learn those things better from other people. We do spend a lot of time talking about formatting of reports, what to include, how to tell a story in your information security writing, and ultimately how to be a much more effective writer to enhance your InfoSec career. So I thought that was a nice aside to what we've done here. That said, please take a moment and thank Michael for his time. You can find him on Twitter at MWLAuthor. And the best thing you can do, go ahead and buy his books uh, at his website, MichaelWLucas.com. He has a list of all of them. We've talked about certainly several of them on this podcast. He's got a lot of great ones. I think there's something for everybody there. And even better, he's an author, and authors love reviews. If you own any of his books, go out to Amazon and leave him a review, a nice positive review. There's nothing that makes an author's day like a great review. And it's really how a lot of authors pay the bills. Good reviews lead to more sales, which help authors pay the bills and write more. So be sure and check out those things. I'm sure he would appreciate it. As always, I appreciate your feedback on the podcast as well. You can reach me at ChrisSanders88 on Twitter. And with that said, we'll see you next uh, here about two weeks for the final episode of this season. Thank you all so much for listening. I really appreciate you. And as always, have a beautiful day to catch back guys.